This morning we're going to Acts chapter 2. We so often spend time in series and preaching through books that it is honestly discomforting when I'm preparing to preach just a, a lone sermon, a random, not random, but you get the idea, uh, a sermon by itself. This is one of those occasions I thought it necessary to preach on the role of parents as we are talking about family dedication today. And um, this is the phrase that I think I'm, I'm preferring as we have thought about these things and prepared for this. I know traditionally it has been referred to in many circles as baby dedication. I think with all that's involved, the fact that uh, this is not just simply us saying, all right, God, the baby belongs to you, but we're actually committing to doing something as parents. Not only that, but as a church. So parents have great responsibility. We understand that. Uh, we see that. Most of you, if, if, if you got kids, you understand the, the, the great gift, the God-given responsibility of having children, but... I would also say that as a church, we have covenanted together to strengthen one another in our family life. And so I think this is a better description of uh, when we set apart a little child, when we set apart a family uh, for God's purposes. Going to Acts chapter 2, we're going to catch the end of Peter's Pentecost sermon. The end of Peter's Pentecost sermon. This is our text for today. It's uh, verse 37 through 39. This is what we're going to cover today. Hopefully it'll be fairly brief since we're taking the supper and we are dedicating these families. I want to review Peter's sermon real quick. Peter has, upon the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, uh, many people hearing uh, the gospel for the first time, many people coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus for the very first time, uh, m almost all of them really are Jews, so they have a backdrop of the Jewish uh, understanding of the Messiah, and so they are, with the help of the Holy Spirit, hearing for the very first time that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. So Peter preaches about Jesus as the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy, Jesus as the better David. He made it clear that God actually worked through the sinful acts of men to render the Son on the cross as the only sacrifice for sin forever. I hope you, you, you catch this. This Jesus, as he says, you crucified. He says, you did it according to the sovereign plan and foreknowledge of God. You thought it was just you deciding to put this man to death because he claimed to be God, or you thought he deserved it. But in fact, it was God putting him up there in order to provide salvation for you. And I say that not to the hearers only of Acts 2, but to you and me. Our sin put him there. As we sing, our sin held him there. He was glad to take the cross. 
in order to save us. This is what Peter preaches about. He further preaches that Jesus rose from the dead, proving his resurrection in the appearance to hundreds. And now this same Jesus, he says, is reigning at the right hand of the Father, and he will reign eternally. That is, in some sense, a summary of the gospel. Peter preaches this, and we note the people's response. Join me in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Let's pray once more. Father, we truly need your help to understand your word. Send your spirit to show us Jesus. And as we prayed earlier, we pray again and let us pray it a million times today. Let us be satisfied in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. The title, Recipients of the Promise. Recipients of the Promise. You see right here in these verses, verse 39, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So we got to define here the promise very simply. It is the promise that salvation will come to the one who believes, and that one will receive the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, as we preached about uh, several weeks ago. This is the promise. You believe on Jesus, you believe that his sacrifice was enough. Scripture says you will be saved. And not only that, The helper will dwell in you. The one who helps you to overcome sin in this journey of looking like Jesus more and more. The one who convicts. The one who really opened your eyes to see Jesus in the first place. We see this Holy Spirit comes to dwell. This is the promise. This is the promise. Having heard the gospel, honestly, We could throw the invitation out there right now and say, if you need Jesus, if you don't know Jesus today, you may repent and believe you will be saved. Your name will be written in heaven. You will be a part of the church, united with Christ. All these things are yours through faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit who was working on you, maybe is working on you, will indwell you. This very moment. This is the promise. He says, and maybe our focus, obviously, for today, this promise is for you and for your children. So the theme this morning, God graciously brings people 
near the gospel through believing families. God graciously brings people near the gospel through believing families. It's just a simple observation that if you are born into a family with believing parents, then God has been so very gracious to you. They may not even be good parents, to be honest with you. But if you had the influence of the Christian faith, if you had some knowledge of the gospel sort of floating around in your home as you grow, grew up, you can point to this text and say, hey, I got the promise because of these people. God graciously brings people near the gospel through believing families. So we could say our desire is for our children to come to saving faith in Jesus and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children. So we want to see them saved and we want to see the Holy Spirit indwelling them and working on them and making them more like Jesus. And as we said, this is a wonderful privilege. Now, the theme may not describe you. It may actually provoke in you a bit of jealousy. Well, I didn't, I didn't have believing parents. Maybe I didn't even have both parents. Maybe I didn't have any parents. I live with my grandparents or whatever. A lot of situations that may be less ideal, less desirable. Here's what I would say today. If you are believing in Jesus today and you didn't have that Christian upbringing, if we could say, it ought to be all the more reason for you to rejoice in God's grace. Because in his love, the love that was set upon you in eternity past, he brought the gospel to you when you were dead in your trespasses and he saved you. He made you alive together with Christ Jesus. So no matter who you are, we have reason to rejoice in, in God's grace this morning. I want to give you three elements from this text. Three elements relating to passing on the promise. I guess we could say it that way. Three elements related to passing on the promise. <clears throat> First off, the first element is an expectation of a faith response. An expectation of a faith response. So Peter preaches the sermon at Pentecost, and his expectation and the expectation of the apostles is that people are going to respond. They're hearing about Jesus for the very first time, so they fully expect to see more followers of Jesus come to fruition at this point. There's an expectation of a faith response. I think it is reasonable for us to apply this in terms of the family, for parents, maybe siblings even, to have an expectation for a faith response in their children, in their brothers and sisters, biological. There's two elements we see here, revelation and then repentance. There is revelation. God reveals himself through the preaching of Peter, preaching at Pentecost. Peter was faithful to preach the gospel and direct people to repentance and faith in Jesus. Yet, 
we recognize in this that God's word does the work that God intends it to do. It is the power of salvation. It says right there, verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. This is the deepest parts of who we are. Hebrews 4.12 talks about how the word of God does this. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I do my best to keep up with, uh, uh, I guess, popular music. I, I love music, and I like uh, observing culture. And I noticed there was a, there was a, a song recently released, and uh, on Instagram, this artist would, would frequently uh, repost the comments that people were making about this song. And people would say stuff, man, this song is just so moving, and it gets it get down deep into who I am, and it just it touches me, it moves me. Y'all know what that's like. That song that just gets you in the feels. People were talking about this song, honestly, in ways that can only describe the Word of God. There is nothing like the way the word of God cuts into who we are. There is nothing like the way the word of God actually judges the intentions of our hearts. You read the word of God and it's dangerous because you're going to get hurt. This is why oftentimes when we preach, we don't walk away feeling wonderful maybe wounded, but in the best possible way. Christian, you know what I'm talking about. Unbeliever, hopefully, maybe, today is that day when you see the word of God for what it is, the eternal word of God that will stand forever. They were cut to the heart. Believer, we experience this every time we open the word when that conviction of sin comes in heavy on us and we are driven to Christ once again. We see him for who he is once again. And we're delighted in him once again, filled with joy in him once again. Why do you come to church every week? I hope it's because every week we're going to unpack the scriptures and see Jesus. And every week, I hope you're convinced again that he's enough. Not only that, but daily, when you open up the word of God, when you think upon the truths of God's word, I hope you are driven to him again. They were cut to the heart. And their response, what should we do? I don't see this type of urgency in our society. I I definitely don't even see it in the church. We hear the word of God, and if we're truly hearing it, if we're truly interpreting the word of God, then it requires action. What should we do? You know, I think about reading the the times of the revivals in America's history and, and the history of England and those occasions when upon the preached word of God, People would be crying and on their faces on the floor. I don't know if we'll ever see that again, but we, we resort to, hey, let's do whatever we can to get people to show up at church. 
Whatever is needed, we'll do it. And then the church loses its voice because it sounds like everything else. A product to consume, a business to run. Certainly not representing heaven. They were cut to the heart. I'm moving too slow. In this revelation, they were cut to the heart, but they were also called. 39. He says, for the promises for you, for your children, all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord, our God, calls to himself. This kind of call must be uh, distinguished from what Peter did. Peter preached and said, everybody, God demands your worship. Come to Jesus. That was what we call a, a general call. This right here is a little bit different. It's what we call the effectual call. It's the call that results in salvation. Matthew Barrett describes it this way. He says, God has chosen his elect in eternity, not on the basis of anything foreseen in them, not even faith. At the proper time, he calls those whom he has chosen to salvation in his son, bringing to fulfillment what he decreed from all eternity. And I would point to Zacchaeus in this matter. You remember what happened to Zacchaeus? He's up in the tree. He's interested in what's going on with the Jesus cat. Jesus, in this whole crowd, says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I'm going to your house today. Well, don't I get a say in this matter, Jesus? Don't I get to tell you whether you can come to my house, Jesus? No, Jesus inserts himself into Zacchaeus' life in a saving and transforming way. And you know what? It all happened with Zacchaeus being glad about it. That's exactly what happened when you were saved. God invaded your heart and mind and said, you belong to me. And you said, yes. Yes. He said, make haste, Zacchaeus. Hurry up and come down. I'm going to your house today. Today. Spurgeon writes about many uh, men and women and children that would be glad to repent, that would be glad to follow Jesus tomorrow. The scripture tells us today is the day of salvation. Here's what Spurgeon writes. He says about this effectual calling, about Zacchaeus, he says, tomorrow is not written in the almanac of time. Tomorrow is on Satan's calendar and nowhere else. Tomorrow is the rock whitened by the mariner's bones who wrecked upon it. Tomorrow is the light that lures poor ships to destruction. Tomorrow is the idiot's cup which he fableth to lie at the foot of the rainbow. Tomorrow is a dream. Tomorrow is a delusion. Tomorrow, he says, you may lift up your eyes in hell. And he says, the clock 
He says, today. He says, everything cries today. And he says, the Holy Ghost says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you can hear about Jesus today and walk away just as happy, supposedly, without him as you were yesterday, you're not experiencing that effectual call. This is the kind of call verse 39 talks about everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. We see the revelation. They were cut to the heart. They were called. And then we see repentance. Very briefly, repentance is simply turning the other direction, turning around, 180. These people heard the gospel. They said, I'm done with the old man. I'm following Jesus. I'm a new person. I'm a new creation. I'm a new creature. Calvin said the Christian life is a lifestyle of repentance. Every day we wake up and repent. We see new sin and we repent. The old man raises up and we repent. The flesh rears its head. We repent. Anger overcomes us. We repent. Temptation gets us. We repent. It all begins with that first measure of repentance that says, I'm done with me. I need Jesus. So there's that revelation that cuts them to the heart. The revelation through which God in time calls them unto himself. And then we see the fruit of it is repentance. Fruit that is part of the evidence, which is number two. The second element. Evidence of a faith response. So we have an expectation of a faith response. And then there's evidence of a faith response. So first off, we can say the fruit that is in keeping with repentance. This is the way that John the Baptist described it. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But furthermore, he says, Peter says right here at their question, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So baptism follows this repentance, this conversion. Baptism is the evidence that you actually believe in Jesus. To say, hey, look at my life, I really believe in Jesus, but then you reject to follow the very basic step of baptism, which is just obedience. It tells a different story. So he says, repent, very first thing you do, be baptized. This is first off an outward identification. Baptism is the only way, get me, the only way the New Testament defines a public profession of faith. Everybody in the New Testament that professes Jesus, their first way to profess that is by being baptized. That's the pattern. It's the pattern we follow as Baptists. 
We baptize believers to set them apart, to publicly identify them with Jesus. They are identifying with Jesus in his death, in his resurrection. As we stated a few weeks ago, that person goes underwater. It's a picture of being buried. That person comes out the water. It's a picture of resurrection. They are new. If you want to declare to the world that you belong to Jesus, the New Testament says... Be baptized. It is, in many ways, a symbol. Much like the way we wear wedding bands. Not that anybody would try, but... People see that I'm married by this band around my finger. I've actually had... uh, some uh, coworkers at some point say, I'm, I'm going to put this in a sermon. It's going to be online forever, but I'm about to say it. My wedding band is tattooed on my finger. It's tattooed because I lost three wedding bands. Okay? Uh, but when you're in conversation in public places and people want to say, wow, you must be so committed that you got your band tattooed on your finger. I say, yeah, I'm that committed. I'm that committed. No, truth is, I just can't keep an actual ring. It says something to the world, right? I belong to somebody. This is what baptism does. Publicly, I belong to Jesus. It's an outward identification, but it's also an inward confirmation. 1 Peter 3.21 talks about baptism as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Here's here's what I'm I'm convinced from the scriptures. If you say you're a believer in Jesus, yet you're not baptized, then you are unsettled. Your heart and your mind are unsettled because you continue to disobey God. We could point to this inward confirmation once again through a wedding ring. A wedding ring confirms my wife and my one flesh. I see it on her finger and I say, hey, we're one. It confirms that we have been made one. And when we recall that time where we were immersed in those waters, maybe you can remember when you were immersed in that water and you said once and for all, I belong to Jesus and he belongs to me. It's an outward identification There's also an inward confirmation. Move on to the third element. The third element is an encouragement toward a faith response. Here we see the role of parents become more clear. I want to give an explanation of the other words here and not just focus on parents, but we will focus on parents. The text says this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. As you see, children and those who are far off are set sort of next to each other to equate to those who are near. That's where our thing comes in. Those who are near and those who are far off. So I remind you once again, if you grew up in a home with Christian parents or had a Christian influence, then you could be described right here as near and not far off. Not the nations who will take the mission of the church over centuries to hear about Jesus. You get to hear it basically from the time you're born. 
So those who are near and those who are far off. And let's focus in on the parents' role as those ministering to those who are near. I'm going beyond this text right now to explain a few things about parenting. If you want to see the promise passed on to your children, and this is no guarantee, it's about who the Lord calls to himself. If you want to see this promise passed on, then I would encourage you just in these few ways. But before we get to that, I don't want you to go too far to the right or to the left, if you will, in saying that it's up to the Lord doesn't mean that you are hands off. Well, let's just sort of figure out, you know, what they really believe on their own and let them sort of work through these things. And No, you teach the gospel. You teach them about the God who created everything, the God around whom all things revolve and in whom all things consist, Colossians 1. That's about Jesus. You teach them these things. You feed them these things so that one day, by the goodwill of God, according to the work of the Spirit, they would come to saving faith. So don't be hands off. We see that in our world, right? Let them figure out what their gender is. No. No, you help them understand. Just like you help them understand the gospel. You teach them right and wrong, based on God's law, not something that we make up. On the other hand, maybe you're not the hands-off kind of person, but maybe you think somehow this is under your control, but it isn't based on God's sovereign work in the hearts of his imagers. Maybe you think somehow you can, you can create faith in your children. Nope. You know how we do this? Oftentimes, we manipulate our own children, manipulating them into praying a prayer, doing something that is not resultant of an inward change, not a result of the Holy Spirit's work, but look, Young children will do a lot of things to make their parents happy. We need to be careful. Don't go hands off. But don't think that you can create faith in them. The Bible gives us basic guidelines, as we read earlier. Deuteronomy 6 tells us, first off, about how to create a godly atmosphere. Made the mistake of not marking my Bible. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. You're going to hear this text one more time today. Here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down. And when you rise. So is there ever a time we should not be making the word of God central in our home? No. It says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Does that mean you need to put Bible verses across the top of your door? Maybe. 
If that's what helps you to make Jesus central in your house, then do it. It's all about creating a godly atmosphere. Parents, you understand that our mission field, our first mission field, is our children. It would be ludicrous to think about the nations and then to neglect the spiritual condition of our own children. It's about a godly atmosphere. I think about most Saturday mornings, I recall every Saturday morning when I was a kid, my father would uh, cook a a big breakfast. Every Sunday morning, yeah, still does. Every Sunday morning, we'd have waffles. But Saturday morning, y'all know what this is like. You cook the bacon, and you could still be in your bed across the house or upstairs. You smell that bacon, don't you? You walk around the house, and there's just just an aroma of bacon, right? It makes you feel good inside. You know what? That bacon smell doesn't go away quick, does it? You can probably smell it the next day. It lingers. You go out the house and you forget what your house smells like. You walk back in the house and you're like, man, bacon. Y'all say, he talks about food too much when he preaches. (laughs) Uh, This is what we're talking about. The atmosphere that can only be described as the atmosphere of a Christian home. Where Christ is exalted. And right here, man, I hope, dad, mom, I hope you're as convicted as I am. This is our responsibility. A godly atmosphere. Also a godly example Parents, I would encourage you this way. If you're really willing to be transparent with your children, from time to time, ask them this question. Do you think we act the same way around church folk as we do at home? It's a good way to say it. Do you think we're the same here and there? And give them an opportunity to say honestly what they think. Recently, I was speaking with an unbelieving young man who grew up in church, and he said, even though he walked through all the motions, had later rejected the gospel, and he said, all through my childhood, it felt like I was going to church for a show, that my parents selfishly wanted to maintain a certain appearance. So I would encourage you, to practice the faith in very specific ways at home. Parents, apply the gospel at home. Confess when you are wrong. Confess when you are wrong. There's not a lot that is a better example of humility than when a a father, when a father can say, hey, I was wrong, please forgive me. Fathers, you don't know what kind of work you will do in that moment. And then offer forgiveness. One thing that we have tried to practice is to say, I forgive you. To ask the question, will you forgive me? And then to say, 
I forgive you. Not sorry. Pagans can be sorry. But forgiveness is uniquely Christian. Godly examples, godly atmosphere, finally, godly obedience. There are many, many passages in the scripture that instruct mothers and fathers. I turn to the father's ones because that's me. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6, 4. Colossians 3, 21, very similar. Fathers, do not provoke your children so they will not become discouraged. Why is it that Paul is so intent on instructing the family? Because he knows the family is the building block of the church and society as a whole. Maybe you've heard this before, but as the family goes, so goes the church. And as the family goes, so goes society. This is why the family was so important. This is why Deuteronomy 6 was so important to the people of Israel that the faith be maintained in the home so that the people of God have everything they need to show the world the better way of the kingdom of Christ. Just this week, I was listening to Al Mohler, Albert Mohler, the uh, president of Southern Seminary. And he was citing the increased secularization of our society over the past 20 years or so. Uh, statistically, and it's no surprise to you, when God refines a people, uh, people are cut loose. There's been a drastic, over 20 years, drastic decrease in church affiliation in our society. And his number one concern with this was the family. He says this is the first place to maintain the next generation in the faith. It is at home. It is the family. So you can guarantee, like, make disciples all you want in the church, but if you neglect your kids, the future will be dark for the Christian faith in our society. I want to read what God intends, Psalm 78, and forgive me if this is clunky as we finish. Psalm 78 Beginning in verse 4, he's just talked about the things, the, the hidden things, the dark things that people do not readily know about God, the things that God has revealed to his people, revealed through his word. Verse 4, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, the wonders that he has done. Verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them. The next, excuse me, the children yet unborn. And arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose hearts 
was not, whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. You see in these verses what God has prescribed. And it's not just about our kids. And I know you folks that are a little older, you can see. Maybe, maybe the, the successes and the errors that have been multiplied in the third generation. Some of you even the fourth generation. You see what God intends. When we teach our children, it's not just one generation we have in mind. It's every generation to follow. Peter says this promise is for you and your children, those who are far off. Psalm 78, those even unborn. This promise is for you. God graciously brings people near the gospel through believing families. I would encourage you as we respond to the word today, parents, maybe there's a measure of repentance that needs to happen. Maybe you need to recommit to your job, your responsibility as a believer. Not just teaching morals, not just teaching being a contributor to society, but teaching Christ. Not just teaching right from wrong, but teaching about the very nature of the God that you hopefully so intimately know. Maybe it's repentance today. Maybe child of whatever age. Maybe today is the day of salvation. I know it is. Today is the day of salvation. This promise is for you. Believe on Jesus. Be saved. You will receive the Holy Spirit. Let's respond to God's word. Pray with me. Father, oh, it's so good to read your word, to hear your word, to hear your saints affirm your word. Father, we pray that in these times of reflection, response, maybe it's not even anything public, but Father, we know that your work has to happen in our hearts, in our lives. So we pray that you would do that. Don't allow us to turn to other things, turn to even other gods, other thoughts, Today's thoughts, tomorrow's thoughts, next week's thoughts, work thoughts. Whatever it is, Father, let us focus on the truth of your son and let us delight in him this morning. We pray in his name once again. Amen.